God's truth is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and it is our treasure as the bride of Christ. In Christ Jesus, dear fellow redeemed, grace, peace, and truth are ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're in a summer sermon series, as I said before, and the title of today's sermon is Teach One Another. And I want to take you on a little walk through the Bible. Why is it that when you open to the very first chapter of the Bible and God tells us about how He created everything, He reminds us that He did it by speaking. He says, let there be light, and there was light. And let there be stars in the sky, and there were stars. And let there be creeping things on the ground. And let us make man in our image. It's always God speaking there. Why is it that in chapter 12 of the first book of the Bible, he meet, he's with Abraham and he gives him a word, a promise. And then later in Abraham's life, in chapter 15, he makes Abraham only trust his word, a promise, over the fact that Abraham and his wife are now well, well past the childbearing years and waiting for years and years after the first promise was given that they'd have a son in order to have that baby. Why is it that he's making Abraham dependent on the word? Why is it at the end of the first book that Jacob is leaning on the top of his staff and, and, and he gives each one of his 12 sons a word from God to remember and he spent so much time crafting it in poetic form uniquely just for each one of them? Why is it that he gave this word, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it belongs? Why is it that Moses took the words of God and the Ten Commandments and etched them in stone twice because he broke the first tablets and then also wrote on parchment all the other words from God he got from the mountain and stuffed them in the Ark of the Covenant to be preserved? Why is it that Moses in the fifth book of the Bible, in Deuteronomy, as he's giving the last giving of the law, why is it he wrote all of that down and then said, in years to come, when you get a king, because they had no king at the time, when you get a king, he must handwrite, his first job is to handwrite all the first five books of the Bible that I have written for himself to have a copy. Why is it 500 years before there was a king that Moses said that? Why is it that David, who was the second king and the man after the Lord's own heart, said in his very first psalm of a psaltery that he wrote many, many psalms for, why is it that he said, whoever meditates in the word of God will be like a tree planted by a, a stream of water and transplanted there and it'll bear fruit even in a drought? Why is it that David said that? Why is it that his son Solomon said, my father gave me words and I'm passing them down to you? And in chapter 3 he said, don't lose those words, but treasure them up in your heart. Why is it that Solomon, at the end of his very lucrative life, didn't write just all about the riches that he made, but he wrote about meaningless, meaningless, unless someone is clinging to and following the Word of God, their life is meaningless. Why did he write that down that way? Why did Isaiah say, at the end of the long, the long chapter about Jesus dying and rising again, why did he say, through the knowledge of these words, my righteous servant will justify many people? And just two chapters later, why did he say, I, I forgive people if you'll just turn back to me and this word will, will not return to me void. My thoughts are not your thoughts, but my thoughts are in these words and it will go out and accomplish what I, I sent for it to do. Why is it that Matthew quotes the Old Testament words at least 24 times in his letter or his gospel about Jesus Christ? 
Why did John start his gospel calling Jesus the Word and then saying the Word that became flesh? Why is it that, that the Apostle Peter stood up at Pentecost and instead of Jesus revealing himself again to all those people, Jesus gave his Spirit to give Peter words that converted them to the gospel of Christ and 3,000 people were baptized, believing the Word that they were forgiven for even uh, shouting that Jesus must have been crucified. Why is it that Peter, late in his life, when he's near death, he, he says, I'm writing this to you while I'm still in the tent of my body, these words, and I want you to know that the stories, the words we gave you, were not just cleverly invented stories, but they were truth. And why is it that he says, if you don't pay attention to our words, you do well to pay attention to the prophets, the words of the Old Testament. Why is it that he said in his other letter, these prophets didn't follow their own their own desires, and it didn't originate with them, but it originated in heaven, and the Holy Spirit gave him the words. Why is it that Paul told Timothy in his first letter, you need to preach the word in season and out of season, and you need to give your attention to preaching and the public reading of Scripture? Why is it that John, when he was uh, getting the revelation of Jesus Christ, was told over and over, write this down, write this down. And in the first few chapters of Revelation, the, the, the Lord revealed to him that his message to the seven churches was all about what they were teaching, whether they were teaching the truth in accordance with his gospel or not. Why is it that when he got the most beautiful vision of heaven in, John, in Revelation 21, that, that, that Jesus said to John, write this vision down, and he did, and we get great comfort. No more crying or suffering or pain or mourning because that's the old order of things because Christ has made everything new. Why is it? Why is it that a dear friend of ours, Harold Johnny, who was a longtime seasoned pastor, missionary, seminary professor, and pastor of pastors, said in his last few weeks of his life, spend your time in the Word of God and try, make it your goal to just read it from cover to cover throughout your entire life without stopping. Why is it that Jesus said, in John chapter 8, if you remain in my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. It's because of what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing the word about Christ. The word of God is the great treasure that Jesus Christ has left with his bride, the church. It's his inheritance to us. The word of God. When Jesus wanted to make a point, rather than try to appeal to the logic of people, he would quote from the Old Testament and reveal what those passages really meant. He's the one that makes us believe in a six-day creation, a real Adam and Eve, a Jonah swallowed by a big fish, a flood that, that engulfed the whole planet. Jesus himself quoted from those passages and said, the word cannot be broken. The word of God is the church's great treasure. And the single most important task that the church of Jesus Christ can do on this planet is teach God's Word. It has to do with our eternal welfare, and it's the single most important thing that we can do is to teach the Word of God. What does that look like? Well, first of all, it looks like Bible study for all ages and all phases and stages of life. It's for Bible study for people from infant to cradle to grave, infant to the end when they, we go to glory. It's the church 
going about her business, finding a way to get the Word of God in whatever venue she can. And if you look at the, the, everything I just shared with you about the people of the Bible, and then the people after that in early church history zealously copying the Bible because the only technology they had was some kind of pen and ink and some kind of, of crudely made paper from papyrus or from leather. And they worked hard to make copies after copies, and that's why we have more copies of the New Testament as an ancient book than any other ancient writing. And we have many copies of the Old Testament that many are preserved from hundreds of years before Christ uh, because they copied and copied and copied. Why? Why did they do that? Because the church knew this is the very Word of God, and it's the way that God comes and creates trust in His love and in our destiny through His promise of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Even after the early church, in the 1200s, there was a monk who sat down and made sure that all of the chapters were created, and num the numbers of the chapters were, cr were created, and they were divided into chapters, and then numbered passages. And that was a huge breakthrough, because now in the, the, the Bible became the form of a book. This is called a codex, a form of a book. And now you could say, look at this chapter or verse and find it rather quickly. Uh, that was a huge breakthrough. And then in the 1400s, when the printing press was invented, the Christians were excited to get the Bible into print and to share it. The bride treasured the Word so much that she shared it as fast as she could through the printing press. Huge technological breakthrough. And now, with the internet and our, and our uh, computers and our cell phones and our ability to, to teach, just like right now, you're, you're hearing this on a, on a video that was recorded just for you. The, the amazing power to use the, the blessings that God has allowed humanity to learn to take the Word of God and to share it. It's almost like we've done full circle that we're actually now able to also give the Word audibly. When originally it was kind of trapped in or, oration rather than people having copies that they could study. Now we can, we can send it around the world in living color with preachers and teachers teaching it. What does it look like? It looks like one person sharing with other people the great message of the Bible as it's found in its book. The Bible is 66 books, and it's a grand story. It's 17 historical books, five poetic books, 17 prophetic books, and then 27 books in the New Testament. It's a great story, uh, the greatest story, about the salvation of this planet through our Lord Jesus Christ. If the, if the church is going to teach one another the way that God tells us to, then we're going to teach the whole Bible to each other. And we're going to work at making sure that everybody knows the entire Word of God. This is, this is the Apostle Paul, who's near death in 2 Timothy, talking to young Timothy. The Apostle Paul's in Rome. He's, he has he's been incarcerated now for the second time. This time he's in a dungeon and not under house arrest like he was the first time. And, and it, Nero is the new Caesar for several years now. And he actually later, after this letter was written, put Paul to death. And Paul was writing Timothy as one of the great leaders left behind for the church in Asia Minor, serving in Ephesus, which was the, hel the hub of all the churches in Asia Minor. And this is what Paul tells Timothy, who's a pastor somewhere in his 30s, maybe, maybe 40. Chapter 3 verse 13, and I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 5. And I want you to hear the passion that Paul has for making sure that Timothy and his contemporaries 
spend their greatest amount of time as the body of Christ, learning, teaching, growing in the very Word of God. Chapter 3, verse 13 of 2 Timothy. Evildoers and impostors will grow from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, his mother and grandmother, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. From when? From infancy, Paul said, that his, his grandma and his mother taught him the Word of God from infancy. How from infancy you were, you were, you've known the Holy Scriptures. They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God is, is so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence, this is Paul getting very solemn. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom. I give you this charge, Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. And all the duties of his ministry had to do with making sure that Timothy did everything within his power to teach God's church the word of God. And as a leader to make sure that others were doing it too to help him reach all ages and all stages of life. I, I've been asking the question, what does that look like? I just want to share with you resources for a few minutes. Um, these are just two, two books that are great for teaching very small children the Word of God. The first one is called The Beginner's Bible. You can get any of these on Amazon. And it's a, it's a, a, a Bible story book that has around 100 Bible stories, starting with Genesis chapter 1, moving all the way to the last book of the Bible, with all the stories in their sequence. This is extremely important and a very simple task for parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles to do. Teach little children the Bible stories in their sequence so that while they're wet cement in your house and they're in their formative years, they are learning. And look at how simple it is with just a few words and how the pictures are very easy to see. Uh, in teaching my children this, just like other storybooks, sometimes I'd get tired at night and they'd want to read two or three stories and I'd try to skip a page. They got so used to it, they'd say, no, Daddy, you skipped a part of the story. You got to go back. And we had fun with it as a family. But they learned the Bibles in their sequence. This, this is uh, still in print today and it's very effective for teaching young children. As they get a little older, here's a hundred, 100 Bible stories where they it's one page per story with a nice picture with a couple of study questions, mostly fact questions, a few thought questions, but your child as they're learning to read loves to read it along with you and it's almost verbatim out of the Bible and then it has a picture to support it and you can talk about it however long you want to. 
We usually do one or two a night. I've watched this, these Bible stories transform the heart and the mind of our foster son, who's 10 years old, in the, just the last year and a half, that, that, or the last year that he's been in our, in our home. He knows the Bible so much better just by reading simple Bible stories. It doesn't take a lot of preparation, even for, for me, and, and I can just have him read, or I can read, or my wife can read. And it's, it becomes a daily tradition in our family. These are two good resources, at least up to fifth or sixth grade. And then there's other Bible, Bible study books that go beyond that, that are Bible sequence. But for, until you're 10 years old, just getting the Bible stories in their sequence and the great plan of salvation, the promises of a Savior in the Old Testament, the fulfillment in Christ's life, death and resurrection in the New Testament, that is the treasure of the church. And we're trying to do this at the churches, at our church, at your church. We're trying to do this on our Sunday experience in our children's ministries, whatever that may look like. The, the primary thing that the church needs to be doing is to teach herself. Each person being exposed to the supernatural word of God, because like Romans 10 said, faith comes from hearing the message about Christ. Um, when we reach 10 years old, 11 years old, up to 25 that's when our brains are developed enough to start to discern doctrines of the Bible. We can learn what is easily logically discerned and what is illogical, but we accept by faith, like the Trinity or baptism or the Lord's Supper or the six-day creation or the mystery of prayer. But we also learn all the logical things that we can put together, like the the Old Testament is prior to Christ and there's a difference between poetry and prose and you could talk about the stories of the New Testament and the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the prophecies about the end of the world and you can start to put things together and you can learn to do apologetics the defense of the faith from 11 to 25 in those formative years while the world as they're going through the education system is attacking their faith in an educated way we also teach them in an educated way that so much of what the world is saying is just opinion. And it's, not, and, and it's just as much faith as our faith is. It's just a faith in unbelief and things that don't, don't have to do with Christ. Uh, during this time, 11 to 25, the church needs to be teaching also her, her children and her, her young adults about Christian living. Because it's so easy to have a whole bunch of head knowledge that they got when they were growing up and trusting and, but to have a life that's very, and their brain's not fully developed, so their decision-making center is the last thing to develop. They need the church to gather around them and talk about how to connect the Word of God with behavior and, and how that affects, decisions affect so many areas of their life and how they can be a, a, a beautiful example of Christ if they'll just trust His Word over all the messages that you're hearing. And underneath that time, during 11 we, we're, we get it usually from 1 to 10 how we're unconditionally loved. But when we're starting, all the hormones are coming and we're starting to act out more. It's so easy for the church to throw off 11 to 25-year-olds because they're so erratic in their behavior. And they make such huge mistakes sometimes. But the church needs to show unconditional love for them during those years because they're getting so far away. And they show them what Christ is like and how he kept calling the disciples back to himself. And, and, and we teach our children the unconditional love in the way that we patiently stay with them even through the rocky times. Then from 25 on, 
It's time, if, if you've had a good education, and some people haven't, and we're finding them in t- trying to teach them in their 30s or 40s, and that's all legit, right? The, we're trying to save souls and, and, and keep them safe. But if we've already taught our people, the church teaches herself, and, and they're 25 and on, they can learn the deep truths and the deep connections in the Bible because they have so much to build on. There's so much that is already built into their mind and heart. This is the thing that the writer to the Hebrews talked about in chapter 5 and 6 when he said, I want to tell you about Melchizedek, who's this guy that shows up in Genesis and he's talked about in Psalm 110, and he's actually a a type of, of pointing ahead to Christ. I have so much to tell you, but you're slow to learn, and we have to go back to the basics. And he said, we, we, we shouldn't be having to do this. You can hear him lamenting. He writes it right there at the end of chapter 5, beginning in chapter 6. But the positive side of that is, the more we teach, the deeper we can go, and the more experience you can have with the Holy Spirit showing you that this beautiful book is a labyrinth of connections, and that prophecy is not just a passage that tells something in the future, but there are themes and motifs that run through the whole Bible that are all interconnected, like God tenting among us, or the scepter will not depart from Judah. These are all uh, themes that the, the more you grow in the Word, you can see the connections, and your, your faith can be deepened. And as you grow in experience, you can grow in grace, in learning how to be gracious and understanding and be constant in the life of the church. Now, how can all of this happen if you're not there? If you're not there to take it in, or you're not there to help teach it, then it, the church's message becomes this little bitty voice that's in a sea of loud voices that are talking about all these different missions in life and great things that can happen in the temporal world. So I'm begging you as a shepherd, no matter what church you're a part of, that you be all in. There are, there are two big things that I want you to take away from this this message about the church teaches herself. The first one is that you would make sure that the big thing at your church is a strong, robust teaching ministry of the Word of God. Because this is the one thing that the church does that if she does not do it, nobody else on the planet is going to do it. All the other religions are teaching something other than the Word of God in the name of God. And then all the people of the world are teaching only about temporal affairs because that's all they know. So they get really excited as if it's the biggest thing in life to help just feed the hungry. But in fact, if that's all you do, you can feed them right into hell. Um, Jesus fed 5,000 plus people and the next day he would not feed those same people because he said, I want to give you something in addition to that that's so much more for your eternal welfare. The bride, the church, takes care of people by feeding them. We, we're a part of food drives. Our own church is part of food drives. But that's not the biggest thing. Make sure that the biggest thing that your church does is to have a robust teaching ministry of the Word of God. Um, just just to, to show you that we're not saying that you do one without the other. You don't, you, the church is to take care of temple affairs. I'll just rattle off some things. We have in our own church body a Christian aid and relief. We just now, for the first time in our history, called a full-time administrator to take care of that. There are millions of dollars available to help people in need. And many times, our local church and others in our fellowship have called on the Christian aid and relief and have brought thousands of dollars to the parish level to help somebody with a car, 
to, to help an apartment complex here in Austin, the people that lived in it because it burned out. And we had a big banquet for them and a meal, and we gave them all kinds of gifts for the grocery store and money for, that they needed. Uh, we recently bought a car. We're paying for braces for a, a poor family that are not members of our church, but just happened to see a member of ours at a gas station. We've been giving backpacks away every August and with packed full of school supplies. We do all that stuff, but never, ever think that because there's tangibles involved, that that's the biggest thing that the church can do. It's not. That has to do with temporal affairs. That's the kind of thing that the world can get excited about only, and they don't get excited about our message. But we're excited about our message. It's the message that feeds the soul at the darkest, most difficult time when we're facing death with the beautiful message of restoration, redemption, and eternal life in heaven. It promises that the body that can't be saved is already saved and will be raised back to life on the last day to join that soul that will never die. It's the message that, bring, that we bring to marriage, that the marriage is serving a higher calling of being the image of Christ and His church. It's the message that holds up the fallen person who's got guilt and shame because they've embarrassed themselves through their mistakes and their sins. But it says, you're still somebody with me. You're completely forgiven. We can leave that behind. It's a word from God that gives people a new start every day. Lamentations 3 says, again, a passage says, God's mercies are new every morning. This is the message that the church has that the world doesn't. And if we don't teach each other, nobody else will. So the first thing I said was to make sure your church has a robust teaching ministry. And it's okay to be agitated and agitating to make sure that that's happening. The second thing is that you be all in in that robust teaching ministry yourself. That you're teaching your family the Word of God at all levels. That you're in the Word yourself. And that you are showing the great value of being around the Word of God as a community. Now, I know you've got some of that in you because you're here watching this online. Because you care about the Word of God and you want to be a part of it. But being all in means you recognize that the greatest contribution that any of us can make to this planet, and we make a lot of other contributions, but the greatest contribution is to somehow duplicate that word of God like Jesus said in the parable about the minas and get it out to as many people as possible. Our life can influence. That means also giving in money to support those that are teaching it, to, to help the gospel go further through their ministry. It means teaching in our own fellowship around our own kids and family. It means showing our kids that the community of faith, the bride of Christ, and what she has in the Word of God is important to you as mom and daddy. It means not just getting a little bit of God every week, but having a lot of God in your heart and in your life. It means being there and being a part of a fellowship to be an encourager. It means if you get a word from God from another Christian, another saint, that gives you some word, some strength in your heart. You actually encourage that, fan it into flame, the way the Bible talks, so that that person will get excited to, to do even more with the encouragement that you give them. Being all in is a thousand more things than what I've mentioned, but I'm just kind of giving you, uh, getting your juices flowing to get you started. What does the church do? She loves one another. She forgives one another. And she teaches one another. The single most important thing 
the church of Jesus Christ can do on earth that nobody else on earth will do is to teach the word of God, which holds up the good news that Jesus Christ has saved of all humanity. Be a part of that. Be your biggest part. You can be of anything. Make this the biggest cause in your life. And you will look back and you'll be glad that you did. And your Savior will point to the far-reaching effects that your little life has had. And you can trust that he'll show you someday from heaven the, the, how that ripple and, and trickle effect of your life and ministry has served his planet. God grant that to you and me. Amen.